The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the program. Looking forward to a good one tonight. We're going to do something that actually has a unique personal connection. And I and I just, most of you know that I'm a musician, plus uh, having been in radio for so many years, uh, I've been uh, directly tied, and my profession is directly tied to music and playing uh, pop music in particular. And I know firsthand that music reflects a society in many ways. And sometimes it actually leads a society. I would hazard to say that the Beatles changed society all by themselves. Elvis Presley changed society and culture all by himself. Um, and there are other artists that have done the same thing. We're going to talk tonight about uh, music and uh, refer to a book called Music is Power by our guest, Brad Schreiber. Uh, we'll be talking about a history of protest songs and how they reflect what's going on in the angst in the culture. Plus, again, they uh, also uh, blaze a trail for culture at times as well. And I'm really excited about this topic. It's kind of unique for us to do this, but uh, I think it's going to be fascinating. In addition to that, Brad has written books about Patty Hearst. Do you remember that name? If you're my age, you were very young when the whole Patty Hearst thing was happening. And if if you if you know the name, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know the name, you're about to find out what happened. Patty Hearst was the heiress to the Hearst fortune. You know, Hearst publications, Hearst newspapers. In fact, the movie Citizen Kane was loosely based on William Randolph Hearst, one of the richest men in the world at, at a time. And he was a media mogul. And Patty Hearst was an heir to that fortune. And she ended up uh, being and I'm going to put this in air quotes, kidnapped. But it turned out to be far more complex than that. And again, we'll talk about that because Brad has written about that. He's also written about uh, some pretty interesting, uh, what I would call somewhat um, obscure topics maybe, or maybe they're just, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't. You can, you can define what they are. But uh, one of them is called Death in Paradise, which is an illustrated history of the Los Angeles County Department of Coroner. Talk about celebrity deaths and uh, some of the weirdness that goes uh, along with those deaths as they do autopsies. Um, another book he's written is called Stop the Show, which is a history of insane incidents and absurd accidents in the theater. I've heard him talk about that book, and it's very, very fascinating as well. He's also written about Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he, he's written about a bunch of things. So we're going to have a, a no shortage of topics tonight with our guest. Again, Brad Schreiber is his name, and we'll bring him in in just a couple minutes, of course. Hello to everybody in both chat rooms. Hi, everybody in Twitch, and hello, everyone in YouTube. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for being here, and thank you for making the chat room so much fun. So many of you, um, you know, I see your names pop up and I, I get a smile on my face because you've all become very, very uh, close friends, despite the fact that there's a, it's, it's, you know, it's a keyboard in between us and a screen. But either way, I do appreciate you being part of this audience and I, uh, I appreciate you being a supporter of the show. Uh, we'll go to break, and when we come back, we'll have our guest on, and we'll begin this conversation because it's going to be a great one, and it's going to cover a lot of things tonight. This is another one of those examples of a, of a guest where we're going to have way more to talk about than we'll have time to talk about, and I can tell you already I'm going to ask him to come back um, to continue talking about this stuff. But we'll get as much in as we can tonight. Again, our guest, Brad Schreiber. We're going to be talking about his books, including Music is Power and Revolutions 
end. That's tonight's conversation on Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Thank you for joining us. Please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just uh, you'll, you'll find it very, very easily. Go to YouTube and search. Just search my name, J.V. Johnson. That'll be simple enough. Click on the subscribe button. There's no fee or anything to subscribe, and you become part of our online community there. We also have a Twitch channel, which is very, very active. It works a little differently in Twitch. You can follow. That's just a click of a button. If you want to subscribe, which gives you a few benefits, there is a fee associated with that. However, if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, if you have a, have an Amazon Prime account, you can actually link it to the Twitch channel, and then there's no fee for the subscription. You just have to renew it each month. You have to go in and just reconnect it each month, and you get that subscription for no additional charge. And both uh, platforms are fun. Each one has its strength. I will remind you, that our weekend programming, which is a little different than our weekday program, will programming will be moving exclusively to Twitch at some point. Right now we do simulcast it, but it will be Twitch only at some point in the near future. Tonight we're going to be talking about a subject that is uh, not just interesting, it's fascinating, but it's also um, important. We all appreciate music, at least most of us do. Most of us uh, can define many points in our lives, but based on songs we were listening to or artists we were listening to, how many times have you turned on, uh, I, I say radio, but a lot of people are listening to music in other ways these days, but turned on whatever it happens to be, and a song comes on and immediately transports you somewhere else in your life, some, some, somewhere in your past, and you feel like you're, you're there. It's that powerful. Well, there's a book called Music is Power. It's written by our guest tonight, Brad Schreiber. He's a writer, a producer, an actor, and a literary consultant, among other things. Brad, we've been waiting for this for a long time, but finally, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here. I have been looking forward to it myself, JV, and it's great to be with you. You know, as I uh, started uh, looking through your materials and, you know, uh, preparing for this particular discussion, which I, I started, uh, you know, many weeks ago, um, one of the things that struck me is the diversity in the topics that you address through your books. Uh, you, you cover a lot of different things. How do you decide what to write about? <laughs> well, you could say that I'm psychotically eclectic, J.B., if you really <laughs> wanted to, and I wouldn't take offense. Uh, my first book was a parody of the Guinness Book of World Records called Weird Wonders and Bizarre Blunders back in 1989, Simon & Schuster. And that was really fun because... The publisher said, when you do interviews, you have to pretend that these 425 world records are real. Never tell them that it's a parody. <laughs> so I was on the radio telling people about the bloodiest boulevard in Milan, Italy, or the most creative use of mashed potatoes during a snowstorm. And that was my first book, Weird Wonders and Bizarre Blunders. But as time went on, I got a little more politically active, and I've kind of bounced between fun humor books, and you might say hidden history, conspiracy stuff that I think your audience would really respond to. As you've matured as a writer and you've explored other things to write about, have you hit on something that you would call your favorite topic to explore? That's really tough because writing comedy like uh, Stop the Show, which is about the live theatrical disasters, um, I didn't think that book would do well, and it's really done well with people who love the theater, and it's been in print since 2003. So that made me feel good. But i got to tell you, one of the main books that uh, you wanted to talk about tonight, Revolution's End, 
is special because I discovered stuff that hadn't been known for 40 years about the Symbionese Liberation Army, the supposed left-wing group that kidnapped Patty Hearst, and turned out that it was created by the California Department of Corrections and the CIA. So I got a real jolt of satisfaction, J.V., out of uh, learning some things that people didn't generally know and putting it in the book. When you set out to write that book or any other book in which you uh, maybe uncovered some things that you didn't expect you would ultimately uncover, um, is there a different part of you that gets satisfaction from that? I mean, that's kind of that's kind of putting on an investigative journalist hat. Yeah, you know what? Um, Revolution's End, as I say, was very special that way. Um, May 17, 1974, Donald DeFries, the black leader of the SLA, the supposed radical group, and his five white followers were caught in a house in South Central Los Angeles, in the inner city, and 500 police surrounded this small house and poured about 5,000 bullets into the house. Wow. There were about 100 shots fired back. This was on live national television, and it was just after the development of the live minicam. In those days, cameras were enormous. That's right. And big burly guys lugged them around on their shoulders. So the three television networks, that's all we had, live across the country covered this shootout. And I discovered that the reason the house got on fire and burned to the ground with those six people wasn't because of an errant bullet that hit some can of gasoline, as the LAPD contended, but I discovered that they used something called a pyrotechnic grenade, and that is used for outdoor riot control, and it should never be used internally. And basically, the, the mostly white LAPD and FBI and California Highway Patrol were worried because it was getting dark. They were in a mostly black neighborhood. There was a lot of hostility, and they finally decided to use pyrotechnic grenades and burn the house down so they wouldn't be there in the middle of the night. And that fact, the pyrotechnic grenade bit, had never been published in, in over 40 years. How did you find that out? What, type, what information did you uncover? Was it a document? Was it footage that you analyzed? How did you determine that? Most of the stuff in Revolutions N I got from a guy named Dick Russell, who in 1976 wrote an article in Argosy magazine, um, and it was like the final piece of the puzzle for me. It, uh, it had some fascinating research that he'd done. But the thing about the pyrotechnic grenades, well, I read uh, the L.A. Times coverage in 1974. Of course, I read everything there was about the SLA. And it described a couple of officers... Um, firing some federal 555 tear gas canisters into that little house. Well, they shot in more than 75 tear gas canisters, and I thought, no big deal. I'll just do my homework, and, oh, here's federal laboratories. Let's see what they say about the federal 555. And they're not tear gas canisters. They're these pyrotechnic grenades. Interestingly, the head of federal back in 1974, was interviewed by the L.A. Times. And he sort of walked a line, J.V., where he didn't want to condemn the LAPD, but he also had to 
basically protect his company and said, well, they're pyrotechnic grenades, and they're usually meant for outdoor riot control. Uh, but the LAPD didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> so he tried to have it both ways. And uh, just by double-checking the L.A. Times story, which sadly the L.A. Times did not do, I realized they had burned the house to the ground purposely. Well, we really rolled up our sleeves quickly and got into the meat of this. And um, I want to continue, but I also want to get some more general information. But what you just described to me, and this is the first I'm hearing of it. Obviously, you uncovered this information. You included it in your book, Revolution's End. But it sounds hauntingly similar to um, the story of the uh, assault on the uh, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. That's right. It, I just watched a documentary about this, and it, was, it sounds like it was the same exact thing, and that's how they ended up incinerating, however, 80, what, 100-some people um, mm. in that building. Yeah. Which one did you watch, JV? Did you watch The Rules of Engagement or another one? I don't remember the title. It was on Netflix. Um, it might have been The Rules of Engagement, which is the one I watched. It was made some years ago, and, and even though it, they didn't have a lot of money, those guys were right on it. Um, yeah, they, had, they, they smashed through the walls, and they shot you know, fire into the building. Yeah. And, and you know, it's such a shame because uh, they said that there was sex with the children at the Branch Davidian compound. There was not. Right. David Koresh had a relationship with a local PD. Um, you know, I, I do some investigation on stories that, that I don't have time to fully investigate, and the Branch Davidians are one of those, JV. And in poking around and talking to people in, in law enforcement, I had a number of people say, Janet Reno had just taken over, you know, alcohol, yep. tobacco, and firearms. And they needed um, a bust. They needed to, to make a show of force somewhere. Yep. And when they moved into Waco, and of course they were federal, so they moved, you know, Texas law enforcement out of the way, mm-hmm. everything tragic happened. I believe that the standoff could have been settled peaceably if they let Texas law enforcement handle it. I think that's a wise assessment, and I think in addition to having to have some kind of show of force to prove something, they were also uh, right off of the disaster that was it was Ruby Ridge, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was an embarrassment uh, for them, and they were looking to uh, to try to, to show some kind of success here. And uh, once again, they just um, they, they took a bad situation and made it much worse. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. They were covering up for the, the killing of, of those um, people, the Weavers That's and Ruby right. Ridge. And, you know, the, the alternate right community was very, very furious. In other words, you didn't have to kill those people. You could have arrested them. Right. And, of course, it just, you know, thankfully there haven't been more deaths in terms of some of the Black Lives Matter and some of the other um, protests, but uh, there have been some. And, you know, when you see federal troops moving into Portland... Thankfully, you know, they're supposedly going to move out starting tomorrow. But when you escalate that much, each side starts escalating, and to get out of it without any deaths is very lucky. And um, we're trying to, of course, avoid that while people exercise their free speech. This um, this interview probably couldn't be more appropriately timed, given what's happening around us with our race relations, with our 
uh, protest situation in, in m- most major cities, um, both from the from the music angle that we're going to be talking about, plus what we're talking about here with law enforcement. Uh, this is really a very, very poignant moment in American history. And I suppose there are others like this, but for my lifetime, this is probably one of the most important. Yeah, you know, Music is Power, you know, came out from Rutgers University Press last November. And um, I had had the idea before Trump was elected to do a book about socially conscious music, starting with the Union songs and Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. And I wanted to touch on every single genre of music. It was very important to me not to write a book about, you know, 60s protest music. And, in fact, there have been country songs that have been written in protest. And I covered every genre I could think of, but I had no idea when it came out last November that we would just see this incredible upheaval. And um, it's fascinating how fast things are changing. You know, J.V., if you look at how quickly some of the Confederate flags and Confederate statues are coming down, um, it's, it's really fat. We're in this moment of change, and we don't even know yeah. in the next couple of years what this whole period really will be. Well, and, and you say quickly, and I think that's even an understatement, and we've seen major shifts, major cultural shifts in a matter of weeks. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible how fast things are changing around us. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I'm fascinated by is, um, you know, obviously you and I and any right-minded person would say we absolutely have to have the police, and most police do their job well. Right. But, but what we're now looking at in terms of this whole movement is the power of police unions, which traditionally, if there's an officer-involved shooting of someone who didn't have a weapon, the police unions basically always back up the officer. Right. And there, there, there's never generally um, any criminal trial. There's not even a firing of that individual. And now we're seeing uh, a more of a sensitivity to some of these um, events, um, not only because of Minneapolis and whether uh, Chauvin, the officer, is going to be criminally charged, but you're seeing it in other places, too, where officers are involved in shootings that were very questionable, and you see them being fired immediately. Well, less than a year ago, J.V., that would never have happened in the United States. The police unions would say, hey, okay, we'll look into it, but we're here to protect you. You don't get to question what we do under any circumstances. And no, we're not going to discipline the officer, and we certainly are are not going to stand to have him charged. And all of a sudden, that's off the table. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Let's um, back up a little bit here, and let's go back to the Patty Hearst SLA uh, discussion we were having. There are a lot of people in my audience that probably don't even know the name Patty Hearst. Remind everyone, because I remember hearing these news reports in real time as a kid. Uh, Remind people what this is all about. Well, I'll give you the short version, because Revolution's End is an extremely complex story. And let me just throw out some names so that your audience will get a sense of what's actually covered in this book. You already uh, mentioned that Patty Hearst was an heiress who was kidnapped by a supposed left-wing group who then turned her into a revolutionary, robbed a bank, and so forth and so on, inevitably 
um, I described uh, six of the members dying in that shootout in 1974. This book includes information and investigation into the CIA, the FBI, the criminal conspiracy section, a special division of the LAPD, the Black Panthers, Ronald Reagan, a radical groups like Vince Ramos and Vietnam veterans against the war. And it also deals with what was called the Black Prisoner Movement in the 70s in California. Um, a lot of your um, listeners who aren't familiar with Patty Hearst certainly won't be familiar with the fact that in the 1970s, um, in Sacramento, the capital of California, they had something called the Adult Authority. So if you were a young black man and you were caught, say, holding up a liquor store, but no one was shot or injured, even if you were an accomplice, you didn't have sentencing by a judge. You had sentencing by something called the Adult Authority, and they would give people whatever sentence they felt like. So you actually saw blacks in nonviolent crimes being given a year to life in jail. So what that did is, all of a sudden, it radicalized black prisoners. And this is where Donald DeFries, the head of the SLA, comes in, because he was actually a guy who couldn't make a living, was caught by the LAPD, and they said, would you like to help us set up Black Panthers in Los Angeles on gun buys so that we can arrest them? And DeFries took that Faustian bargain and said, yeah, I don't want to go to jail. I'll be, I'll be a snitch for you. And the rest of the book, without going on and on forever, is basically about how DeFries was sent to prison, had drugs used on him under a CIA mind control program, which has been proven like decades ago, and then was allowed to leave prison if he set up a phony left-wing group. And that phony left-wing group, the SLA, connects all the way to Ronald Reagan, the governor of California. So that's the shortest version I can give you of this completely insane story that fascinated me as a kid when I lived in the Bay Area. And it, it, and it has remained mostly untold. This story has been mostly untold until you've begun telling it. Well, that's awfully nice of you, JV, and it sounds really great. But I've got to give my props to the underground press in the 70s. The Berkeley Bar was a weekly underground newspaper. Uh, the L.A. Free Press was an underground newspaper. Um, a guy named Paul Krasner, who was one of the yippies and founded The Realist, an underground newspaper. All these guys had a lot of that information, but the mainstream press ignored it. And that's why I inevitably went... You know, I'm not going to die and not tell this story because every time a documentary came out or a book came out about the Patty Hearst kidnapping, they ignored everything about the CIA. They ignored everything about the prisons. And I went, I'm the guy with the information. I guess I have to do it myself. We're talking tonight with Brad Schreiber. We're talking about his books, including Revolution's End and Music is Power. We're also going to talk about a couple of the others. His website, by the way, is his name, bradschreiber.com. Is that the best place for people to go to get information on all the books? Yeah, I have a books page, and I have links to Amazon, and I also have, you know, some video and 
audio interviews that people might uh, find interesting based on some of the books. Yeah, I actually watched the interview. It was uh, ABC, um, uh, some interview you did on ABC, I think it was, about the uh, uh, the uh, um, Los Death Angeles County. Paradise, yeah, yeah. The, the crazy coroner book. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, another, that's another whole nutty story we can get into. Yeah, I, I want to touch on that a little bit later in the conversation. But back to the Patty Hearst situation, I'm embarrassed to even say this and ask the follow-up question. I don't remember what happened to Patty Hearst. Did she go to prison? Um, she did go to prison, but it, it's really fascinating. Um, there was a guy named Leo Ryan who was a representative of San Mateo County, which is where I lived in Northern California. And he investigated basically what was going on in Vacaville Prison and the CIA. He was a very progressive representative, and he found out what happened. Basically, that, that whole spiel I gave you about Revolution's End, mm-hmm. um, he actually knew it, and no one else in Congress wanted to touch it. So what happened is Jimmy Carter was president then, J.B., and Leo Ryan said, okay, Patty Hearst has been sentenced to seven years for belonging to this supposed left-wing radical group. Well, here's all the documentation from my congressional office, President Carter, and it proves that Donald DeFreeze had a sexual relationship with Patty Hearst, who was visiting him in jail. In fact, two other white women in the SLA also had sexual relationships with DeFreeze. So Leo Ryan basically said to Carter, look, I know... The press is not going to touch this. There's not going to be a congressional inquiry into it. But I'm telling you that this guy, DeFreeze, kidnapped this woman and threatened her, gave her drugs, and coerced her so that she would become a member of this supposed radical group. And it wasn't a real radical group. It had been set up by Reagan in order to make the Black Panthers and the anti-Vietnam War demonstrators look irresponsible. So President Carter, will you please commute her sentence, since she was caught up in a blown police action. And if anybody goes, I don't believe any of this, I don't think this is possible, all you have to do, J.V., is tell them the President of the United States looked at Leo Ryan's um, his, his data, his research, and he commuted her sentence to 22 months. He was so convinced that she was caught up in, in a larger intelligence scheme that he said, no, she doesn't have to serve seven years. The sad part of it is, uh, you know, did she fight for great causes? Did she become a social activist? No, she moved to Connecticut, and she raises show dogs. <laughs> is, she still, is she still with us? Yeah, she is. Her she married one of her guards, JV, wow. and they settled in a very tony neighborhood in Connecticut. Um, her husband has since passed away. She has two daughters, but it's like you would have hoped that maybe her political consciousness would have been woke, as yeah. they say nowadays. But no, she raises show dogs for the Westminster Dog Show and stuff like that. She and she and Linda Blair. Uh, Linda Blair does a lot of the same thing. Oh, really? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, as as you start to uncover this, and I find this interesting too, because we've had several programs on several different topics, and I'm trying to grasp at one that I can't come up with the, uh, specifics on. But the CIA and and its tentacles and its fingers, 
seem to be involved in way more than we ever realized, this being one of those things. Well, yeah, you know, from like 54 to 74, around there, JV, was um, MK Ultra, And you've probably seen, I, I know people have seen lots of cable TV shows by now about MK Ultra and um, the mind control That's experiments right. that were done. They used over 120 different drugs on people, sometimes wittingly, sometimes they slipped it into their food. Um, so that's no surprise. What was going on at Vacaville when Donald DeFries was in prison there was called MK Search. It was an offshoot of MK Ultra. And what they did was they took black prisoners only and they would give them drugs and see how far they could push them. In, in essence, the CIA was trying to understand how can we break people or, or how can we use people um, as double agents and under duress, under the effects of these drugs, how far can we push them? And Donald DeFries was one of those black prisoners, and he he nearly lost his mind. I mean, they were using really horrifying drugs, which I talk about in Revolution's End. One of which uh, basically kept you up for two weeks, oh, wow. and you couldn't sleep, and you couldn't rest, and you were constantly jittery, and you felt like you were going to lose your mind. These were all drugs that, that were confirmed as used by the CIA in different places. Sometimes they used them in mental hospitals. Sometimes they used them in prisons. And obviously, as, as you can tell, um, what better place to use illicit drugs on people because you're not going to have any responsibility. You get people to basically sign informed consent, and they're either a mental patient or a prisoner, and they have no rights. They're not going to sue you. You're doing a, an amazing job of making me personally connect a whole bunch of dots that I hadn't connected before our conversation. And the description of, of this uh, this CIA program in where they were testing drugs on people, on prisoners primarily, reminds me of another film uh, that I love called uh, Jacob's Ladder with Tim Robbins. Do you know oh, that film? I have to interrupt you, JV. I love that movie. Yeah. It's, it's amazing fantastic. Movie. Yeah, fantastic. And it's similar in the sense that the military, about the same time in, in the 60s with the Vietnam War, was testing drugs on soldiers to see if they could get them to be more aggressive in the fight. Uh, very interesting, the, the parallel to what we've just talked about. It's a brilliantly made movie, and uh, Tim Robbins stars in it. And, and I'll, I'll tell your listeners, without giving much away, that... There are moments where Tim's character thinks he's seeing scary, terrifying, almost satanic images in yeah. everyday life in New York. Right. And then you find out that he was in Vietnam, and um, it's a brilliant movie that basically makes you guess until the very end what's really going on and what's in the imagination of this guy. And needless to say, not only the CIA and... And drugs, JV, but you know something like Agent Orange, mm -hmm. you know, which which made so many um, vets come back very ill, and the VA basically did did not um, compensate them, did not support them. Uh, this is something actually that goes through history. It's a continuum. In the Iraq War, um, we had depleted uranium that was coating the shells of our munitions, and when you fire you know, they're used because they can pierce armor, which is very effective. Mm -hmm. 
But the problem is coating a shell with depleted uranium gives off um, a heat signature, and it's carcinogenic. So all of our guys who are fighting in Iraq who are anywhere near those shells came back with cancer. And once again, the VA said, well, you can't prove that, even though many doctors had said how carcinogenic it was. So there's linkage between what we did to our vets in Vietnam with Agent Orange and what we did to our vets in Iraq with depleted uranium shells. Sad, and there's no excuse for that. And uh, Jacob's Ladder, one of my favorite all-time movies. Let's go back to uh, the small house in Los Angeles surrounded by 500 police officers. Um, This scene and and the result and and the way it played out set the stage for uh, a lot of what we see today in police militarization. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, you went there, JV, because... Oftentimes when I talk about revolutions, and I want to give people a headline because, as you can tell, it's a highly complicated story, and you don't want people to get lost. So the headline I give people, and thanks for reminding me, I forgot, (laughs) is basically that shootout in 1974 was the beginning of the militarization of police in the United States. And you might wonder, well, How does one shootout in south-central Los Angeles lead to that? Well, SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics, was brand new. And it had been used in California against the Black Panthers, because California was the hotbed of political activity in the 70s, but it had never been seen by the rest of the country. So for the first time during that two-hour shootout on national TV, on all three networks, Americans saw for the first time SWAT teams in addition to other officers. And what happened is, all of a sudden, police departments around the country from big cities were calling the LAPD, where SWAT originated from, and saying, you know, we've got drug dealers and other people, you know, hold up in the worst sections of our cities. We'd like you to come out here and train our men in SWAT, and we will pay you. And so the next thing you know, after the shootout in May of 74, SWAT teams were developing all over the U.S. So, you know, instead of, instead of using a hammer on a nail, you're using a bulldozer on a nail, so to speak. And then there was this program called the 1099 program in the 90s, or I think it was the 1099 program, where the Fed said, well, we've got all this military stuff. We've got... We've got armored personnel carriers, and we've got automatic weapons and Kevlar. And you know what? We're going to be buying all new stuff. Let's give it away to police departments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, you say, well, yes, of course, we want to battle crime. But just as we just saw in Portland, when you have protesters who are mostly being um, safe and a couple of outsiders who are trying to stir up trouble... If you bring in militarized units, all of a sudden everyone is going to react violently, and then you're going to counter-react, and as I said before, it all escalates. So this whole militarization of our police really goes back to the SLA shootout that I write about in, in Revolution's End. Well, I actually have a personal story I'll tell very quickly. Um, yeah, I, w- I, w- I was an elected uh, legislator 
in the county that I live in here, and I was the chairman, uh, vice chairman of the board, and I was chairman of the committee that uh, made all the appropriations. And uh, the sheriff came to us one time. Now we have a, a county of sixty thousand people. There's no, this the largest city, and there's only one in the whole county is uh, about ten thousand people. The rest are hamlets and villages, very very rural. The sheriff came in and said, "I was just given this ar- armored personnel carrier." Uh, by I don't know the National Guard. I don't even know where it came from. Um, and uh, I want to I want to you know pay to have it painted and do all these. Things. And, I, and I just sat there dumbfounded. I'm like, why do we need an armored personnel carrier in Otsego County, New York? Which you know the the, the most crime is parking tickets. Um, mm-hmm. You know we just don't have crime like that, thankfully. Um, but the sheriff was adamant that we accept this thing, and I got outvoted, and this this thing still sits in the sheriff's uh, lot, and I don't know why. But that's exactly what you're talking about. They were giving them to police departments. Yeah, it's the Pentagon, and, um, you know, that's what Ferguson, Missouri, was about, you know. It was not only, you know, violence uh, uh, against um, uh, a black person by a white policeman, but it was kind of a history of blacks being given so many tickets that they had to go to jail because they couldn't pay for the, the the traffic tickets. And that was an industry in and around the municipalities of Ferguson, Missouri. So you had all this hostility kind of building up, and then you had the shooting. And then what happened? They completely blew it out of proportion by you know sending in military and tanks. And then, of course, even more people came out. That's the thing that actually is positive that I think is is coming, J.B., is the idea that we need police, but we need to help the police. You shouldn't call the police in every time. Sometimes you need a, a policeman with a gun. Sometimes you need someone else who is trained to defuse a situation. And that's something hopefully we're going to see more of in terms of funding of police departments. You know, psychological counseling for people who really aren't going to hurt anybody but aren't right in the head, and you don't want to escalate the situation. We're going to take a break here in a minute, and when we come back, I want to shift the conversation to talk about music as power. But before we do, what and maybe you've just outlined some of the lessons that we can learn from what you've uncovered and written about in Revolution's End, but what else can we learn from this book? Uh, one of the things that um, we need to be concerned about is – well, it was the use of Donald DeFreeze, you know, as a phony, uh, you know, basically a police agent, and how that got out of hand. And, you know, it's the same thing that we saw in Portland and we just saw in New York of, you know, grabbing somebody off the street and throwing them into an unmarked van. That is the first step to ruining democracy. You know, if someone's broken the law, then you send the police after them, you arrest them. You have a way to be identified, and you charge them. You don't pull people off the street like, uh, you know, it's a communist country or it's the Gestapo or it's some junta in in South America. So we have to be aware of the proper way to enforce law and order and and not fall prey to saying, well, let's just use any any process we want. I'm going to put on my bit of a tinfoil hat here for just a second and and ask this question, because as you once again uh, were describing how Donald DeFries was used, I immediately thought of Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm. Do you you think Lee Harvey Oswald 
was used by the CIA or some other uh, black uh, shadow government uh, organization uh, to uh, be a patsy? Um, you know, I did an interview with a guy named S.T. Patrick, um, who's, who's got a really good website called Midnight Writer News, W-R-I-T-E-R. And he's got, you know, people like James DiGenio and, and um, so many uh, wonderful JFK researchers, and I've learned a lot from them. And, you know, I think Oswald was a patsy. We know that there was another guy who, who basically looked like Oswald. Um, I've read some really interesting stuff that Oswald knew that there was a plot against Kennedy and was going to happen in Chicago, and that he helped foil it. And those people who wanted to take out Kennedy went, okay, let's, let's get Kennedy and let's also get Oswald. Um, so that's what my research, you know, basically we can go on and on about the JFK thing, because even to this day we, we're learning more and more. Right. But I think that's the most interesting thing that I've read in years of study about um, Oswald, is that he was used by the government, but then when he saw that there was a plot against um, John F. Kennedy, he was no longer cooperating, and they caught him, and they set him up. Brad, before we get into Music is Power, though, I've got to ask you about Stop the Show. I, yeah, I, I heard you um, I heard you do an, uh, an interview talking about this book. This book sounds really, really fascinating to me. Tell uh, me a little bit more about it and, of course, the audience who may not know what it's about. Well, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, I'm going to try and keep this as clean as possible. <laughs> um, um, my girlfriend and I went to see um, a friend who is an o- older English actor. He's very short and balding and very... Um, um, very bombastic. His name was Cyril, and he was in a play. So we figured we're going to go see Cyril, and then afterwards we'll hang out and have a drink. Well, in this play, uh, he's wearing a leather outfit because he's supposed to be into S&M, and he's running around because it's a farce. And at one point, he's jumping up and down so much that one of his testicles popped out <laughs> of his little leather brief. And the audience starts cracking up, and Cyril, not understanding what's happened, is thinking, oh, I'm really hilarious tonight. I'm really killing them. <laughs> so he jumps around even more, being a ham. Oh, no. The audience laughs even more. And Chris and I look at each other laughing and horrified because it's how do we face our friend and tell him, hey, you lost something <laughs> literally in that moment on stage. <laughs> So, J.V., from that bizarre incident, I started talking to my friends in the theater, and I tell them that story, and they go, oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you about the time that, you know, they were putting a wig on my head, and they stuck a pin into my scalp, and I had to go on stage bleeding. And so I started hearing more and more of these bizarre live theatrical disaster stories, and I put them together and, and stopped the show, and, you know, you've got people fighting backstage, you've got lights falling down on people's heads, you've got audience members. One of my favorite, this is very brief, one of my favorite stories about audience interaction, you remember the musical Cats? Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Okay, awful idea for a musical. But anyway, it ran for years on Broadway. Well, after the first act, you know, people on the streets in New York, once we reopen the theaters, they'll go back into the theater 
You know, the doors are open. Well, a homeless woman walked in with all the other people, and the second act of Cats starts with all the costume characters walking around, and this homeless woman gets on stage and starts going, meow, meow, rubbing up against the other performers who don't know what to do. And then finally some stagehands chase her. She runs across the stage, runs out a side door, and they never catch her. So those are the kinds of stories I put in to stop the show. That sounded like a Marx Brothers routine. Um... Yeah, most of the stories are, are really funny. There are a couple that are kind of horrifying and disastrous, but... I mostly did it to cheer people up. Well, that's funny. And that, that first story gives a whole new meaning, meaning to the phrase wardrobe malfunction. Um, <laughs> really? So let's talk about music as power. As somebody who's been in radio for well over 30 years, which is hard to imagine, um, you know, music has been an important part of my life. And I, I you know, played the, the songs that people wanted to hear. I became attached to many of them. Um, and I also recognized often that when I would be reading the news in one hand and then playing the the current popular music on the other hand, that there was a connection in, at many times. Yeah. Talk about this concept and when it first uh, uh, occurred to you, maybe, and then appealed to you as a topic for writing. It really started young. I mean, my musical education didn't start with rock and roll. I had a father who only listened to classical music, but um, it, I, was, I was in love with what I heard. My mother had Broadway shows and what we now call world music, a Miriam Makeba from Africa and Harry Belafonte doing Calypso. So I was fascinated by all these different types of music, and, um, and then I got into rock and roll. But I was always drawn to songs that were sociopolitical, and... As I said earlier, I wanted to do every style of music. So literally you've got like heavy metal and hip-hop and comedy songs by Tom Lehrer and the Smothers Brothers and, you know, psychedelic music, country music, everything that you can think of as long as it addresses a sociopolitical issue. Do you think, or was it was there a point where these themes creeped into music, or are they as old as music itself? Well, that's a good question. I decided that probably the beginning in the U.S. of sociopolitical music was probably, you know, songs sung by black slaves. Um, and sometimes that language was very coded, mm-hmm. so that... Um, so that the owners of the slaves wouldn't understand. You know, gospel music, um, church music, often talks about religion and God and Jesus, but it's also about overcoming what's unfair. So I decided, okay, we'll touch on that, but really the beginnings like the 1910s and 20s with union songs, and that leads to Woody Guthrie and, and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, and then you get into rock and roll and... And I just kept moving forward and forward until we now have, you know, Kendrick Lamar and NWA and Public Enemy and, you know, bands that I've never heard of in the last couple of months, JV, who are putting out sociopolitical music. And I'll give you one example really quickly. I was on a radio show and we were talking about this, and I said to the host, you know, the way, um, you know, Floyd and, and the whole thing of I can't breathe and how that's become a meme and people talk about it. 
I said to the host, I'm surprised that someone hasn't written a song called I Can't Breathe about, you know, racism or right. political or, you know, police brutality or something. And then I got curious and I went online. Two female singers had already written songs called I Can't Breathe. <laughs> wow. So there you go. There's more people doing it. There's obviously more avenues of getting music, but there's more, more people than ever also writing sociopolitical music, which I think is pretty appropriate for the Trump years. Does sociopolitical music, in the, in the context of what you wrote about in Music is Power, does it have to be about strife, or can it, can it be also um, a, a cheerleader of some sociopolitical idea? Absolutely. I mean, that's a really great point. And, and the first thing that came to my head when you said it was um, the um, Eve of Destruction, written by a guy I actually knew named P.F. Sloan, Phil Sloan. That song was made popular by a guy named Barry McGuire. That's right. At the same time, on the charts, on the Billboard charts in the United States, was a song that was pro-Vietnam by a guy named Sergeant Barry Sadler. And it was called The Ballad of the Green Berets. Yep. He was a Green Beret. So within the same year, you had a song talking about racism and war and, and all this other stuff. And, and you had a song t- saying, you know, we need to honor our soldiers. That's how polarized the U.S. was in the middle 60s. Um, 65, 67, about 50-50. And, of course, by 1968 and 69, most of America started turning against the war. But I was fascinated that, that a song that was so clearly right could coexist with a song that was so clearly left in the same year. I, um, this may just betray my upbringing, but I find it very interesting, and maybe this is uh, you can support this or maybe argue it against it. Um, the 60s seems to be a real confluence of amazing music uh, evolution, real uh, political angst, for, for maybe for the first time at that level, um, and this unbridled creativity coming from whether it was the British invasion or whether it was in, in, in California – um, all of it came together all at the same time and produced some amazing art. But at the same time, is that an important moment in this idea of music and a social, sociopolitical connection? Oh, sure. I mean, Rutgers wanted a cover that represented the 60s, so they did a very psychedelic cover. And I said, okay, but remember, <laughs> this book is covering 1920 to today. And they said, we know, we know, but there was this incredible ferment in the 60s of political music, you know, starting with, um, you know, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and the, the new folk revival, and then, you know, right through psychedelia and Motown. Motown's kind of an interesting phenomenon, J.V., because um, Barry Gordy, as head of Motown, didn't want political music. Um, he thought, you know, nobody, everybody's going to be turned off by it. We're not going to make any money. And it turned out that Norman Whitfield, his in-house producer, started working with the Temptations and other groups and doing political stuff like Ball of Confusion and other incredible soul music that was fascinating and danceable, but also criticized the things that were wrong. And because it made money, Barry Gordy went, Oh, okay, well, I guess we can put that stuff out. 
as long as it makes money, and that led to opportunities for people like Stevie Wonder. So sometimes the people who are afraid that sociopolitical commentary is going to turn people off find, well, no, if it's done really well, it's going to make as much money as a love song. What does uh, What's more important in that formula? Is it more important to have a hit song with the right hook and the lyrics happen to be sociopolitical in nature, but that's almost secondary and, and the message gets through because the song is good? Or does the message make the song good? Boy, that is a great question, and I'm not sure that anybody has the answer to that. The first thing I think of with such a tough question is, what songs were popular that were sociopolitical that I think sucked? Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, there was a guy named Thunderclap Newman who um, did a song called Something in the Air. We got to get together sooner or later because the revolution's here and you know it's right. I thought it was very simplistic, it was very silly. Who was the producer on that song? Pete Townsend of The Who. Oh. The song went to number one before The Who had their own number one songs. I thought it was very unsubtle. I thought it was naive. But there was so much going on at the time that Thunderclap Newman got a number one hit out of it. Interesting. I don't think I answered your question, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you touched on the an answer there for me. Um so I guess, do, do people buy music because it, it, the message strikes a chord with them, say, politically? This is, you're, you're asking excellent questions. We're going to have to like, talk to each other once a week for the rest of the year. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, these, are, these are really good questions. And one of the things that I've decided upon in doing interviews for Music is Power is, is that you can't tell whether one sociopolitical song is going to be a hit and one is not. But what I'm noticing now is with the birth of social media, you have pop artists who don't write sociopolitical music but are getting political. So all of a sudden you see Taylor Swift mm -hmm. talking about racism or LGBTQ rights, and she still hasn't written a sociopolitical song, but her heart's in the right place. And she's got a zillion followers, and all of a sudden they're going, oh, wow, you know, I didn't really think about this. If, if Taylor likes it, maybe I should support it. Maybe I should, you know, look into this or give some money to some causes. So you don't actually have to write a sociopolitical song to be a musical artist to affect positive change anymore. Yeah, that was actually a point I was going to make. It seems, though, I remember as an Elvis fan, uh, as a kid, and, and still to this day, um, yeah. I remember seeing interviews with Elvis where he was asked about the Vietnam War or other political issues, and he would just say, I don't talk about politics. You know, I don't, I just don't do that. Um, and there were a lot of artists that took that uh, position, and maybe there still are, but it seems as though not just musicians, but celebrities of all kinds are very anxious to talk about their political views, whether they will write a song about it or not, or do a film about it or not, doesn't really seem to matter so much, but they do have an opinion and they're anxious to share it. Well, I think of two things with that comment, actually, JV. The first is Elvis Presley, you're absolutely right, but then inevitably he did In the Ghetto. That's true, so he that's right. talked about, you know... Um, Poverty, generational poverty in the ghetto. The other is, you know, 
very close to my heart. I wrote a book called um, Becoming Jimi Hendrix about the early years of Jimi. And Jimi, you know, as, as pertains to your comment, was a perfect example of somebody who didn't want to be political. So he talked in certain images, and he talked about, you know, are you experienced, for example, that song. He doesn't exactly say what you're supposed to be experienced in, but he was the only guy during the psychedelic era who had the nerve to say, not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. So what did that mean? It meant that during the height of drug-taking in the psychedelic portion of the 60s, one of the most psychedelic characters was saying, you need to evolve. You need to become more humane. You need to tap into what's going on in the world, and you don't necessarily need drugs to get there. And, you know, rather than talking about racism or talking about some specific thing, Jimmy had an impact sociopolitically in a very poetic way. It's one of the things I really appreciated about him. Let's talk specifically about some songs. First of all, can a song change or alter history? Yeah, I love talking about this because most people go, well, Brad, let's get real. One song isn't going to change anything. Wrong. <laughs> I will pick a, a more modern um, event. Um, Peter Gabriel, who I love, who used to be with Genesis and then went out on his own, did a song in 1977 called Biko. It was about Stephen Biko, um, a black rights activist in South Africa who was beaten to death in a jail cell in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. So when that happened, Gabriel released this beautiful song that used African chanting and great drums, and it was very stirring. And all of a sudden, some movement occurred, and people in the United States on college campuses, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, uh, not an NGO, not a nonprofit, but college students started going to the heads of schools and saying, you've invested money in South Africa, and they have apartheid, and we are going to pick it and we're going to make your life miserable until you divest the millions and millions of dollars that you have invested in South Africa's economy. And all of a sudden, it was like what's happening now with the Confederate statues and everything. The same thing happened in 77 through the mid-'80s. All of a sudden, colleges and universities in the U.S. start pulling all their money out of South Africa because they were racist. And within less than 10 years, $1 billion, $1 billion with a B, had been pulled out of South Africa. And then you had, you know, projects like Sun City, of course, with little Stephen Van Zandt, to make people more aware that the U.S. had been supporting a racist country. And it all started with Peter Gabriel's Biko. One song did that. I have more respect for Peter Gabriel. Um, I've always thought he's, he was an underrated musician, and maybe that's just from my own perspective, because every time I hear his music, I'm, I'm more impressed than I was the first time. Yeah, you know, I, I talk in that chapter about um, Gabriel and Bob Marley, who, of course, you know, people in the U.S. don't probably, and I don't blame them because you don't live in 12 different countries, but Bob Marley was loved throughout the world. He was phenomenally influential. When Rhodesia became Zimbabwe and Africa, 
the Freedom Fighters played Bob Marley Jamaican music. Hmm. Stand up for your rights, you know, don't give up the fight. Um, so Gabriel and Bob Marley in that chapter in Music is Power, you come to understand that their songs really did change history. Um, and, you know, I mentioned Eve of Destruction. Ironically, um, there's a line, one line in the song that says, you're, you're old enough to kill, but not for voting. Well, that started a discussion in the mid-60s. And Richard Nixon, of all people, passed the 26th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave 18-year-olds the right to vote. In other words, an 18-year-old could be drafted, sent to Vietnam, and killed, and still not have the ability to vote. So Nixon, of all people, um, basically said, well, that's not right. Let's have an amendment to the Constitution, which, of course, happens very rarely. Yeah. And something tells me that Richard Nixon probably wishes he hadn't done that. Um, sounds like we're going to have to have somebody write a song about being old enough to kill but not old enough to have a beer. Yeah. Because that seems to be a common complaint. Um, there are a lot of let's 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 keep the race relation stuff aside for a moment because I want All to right. talk that talk about that specifically. But if you were to go through and name a couple of other, you know, maybe we'll call them pop songs, songs that almost everybody uh, knows or has heard one time or another that actually were important from this perspective. Um, what songs would you name? Oh gosh, well there's so many, both black and white. Um, you know, Pete Seeger uh, came up with a song based on uh, some religious um, songs he'd heard called We Shall Overcome. Mm -hmm. It wound up being one of the major vanguard songs of the civil rights movement in the late 50s and early 60s. And even Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, who of course escalated the war in Vietnam, uh, signed the 1965 Civil Rights Act the one that John Lewis, who just passed away, was so instrumental in fighting for. And in his speech on national TV, Lyndon Johnson, of all people, said, and we shall overcome, right. referring to racism. So there's an example. Um, it seems obvious, but James Brown, you know, the godfather of soul and mm -hmm. funk, uh, his song, Say It Loud, We're, Bra we're Black and We're Proud, um, there had been a lot of songs about racism in America, but that became an anthem, and it, it fostered great pride. Um, I loved writing about Janice Ian's Society's Child, which was about uh, two young people, black and white, who were in love, and basically society destroyed their relationship because people were so close-minded. Janice Ian um, basically wrote a number one hit song when she was 16 years old. And America wasn't ready for it. And she was spat at, and, wow. you know, rec records were smashed. There was a station that was literally burned to the ground in the South for playing Society's Child. Just, it's just remarkable what some of these musical artists had to put up with. Because, you know, usually we think, J.V., well, you're a pop star, so, you know, everything's easy. you got power, and you've got status and money, and everything's going to be a breeze. Well, you know, John Lennon almost derailed, derailed the Beatles when he made a comment about, oh, you know, we're bigger than Jesus. And right. all of a sudden, in the Deep South, uh, they were burning Beatle records. 
So, you know, it's, it's pretty intriguing to see that sometimes musical artists say, I'm going to say or do something that may get us into trouble, but I believe it has to be said. You know, it's not always a breeze when you're a rock star. You brought up the Beatles, um, and I don't know if this is because I'm also a huge Beatles fan, but I happen to think they were uh, very, very instrumental in um, cultural shift and mm-hmm. attitude shift uh, during the 60s into the early 70s. Is that a fair assumption? Hey, well, they're my favorite group of all time, so, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a sucker for any discussion about the Beatles. Um, and they did so many different things. You know, She's Leaving Home. Mm-hmm. What an amazing song about a child whose parents give her everything except love and understanding. You got, you know, all the consumerist stuff that a kid could want, and all of a sudden the parents go, what happened? What went wrong? We gave her everything money could buy. Well, that's not all there is to raising a child in this world. So I thought, you know, that's a great sociopolitical stance. But then they got into kind of Eastern mysticism with George Harrison and, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows and... Uh, and then, of course, Lennon, I, in my chapter on the Beatles, I talk about his real in-your-face music after mm-hmm. he left the Beatles mm-hmm. and was with Yoko Ono. Oh, my God. I mean, he was he was doing a s- songs that nobody else would dare do. So um, the Beatles kind of softened their sociopolitical stuff, and I think by the time Lennon left the Beatles, he said, you know what, I'm just going to let people have it. You know, woman is the N word of the world. Yeah. I can't even say the title, and that was being played on radio stations across the United States. Uh, working class hero used vulgarity in that song yeah. and insult. I mean, he was willing to insult anybody in order to make a point, even his own fans. And I don't think it was self-destructive. I think it was just incredibly honest and incredibly brave. Yeah, brave was the word that came to mind. And I was also, you know, I made some notes, and uh, John Lennon's song, Imagine, may not have changed the world, but it certainly uh, has healed the world at times. Yeah, you know, there's one line that nobody ever talks about in Imagine. Um, You know, he says, imagine no countries and no religion, too. Yep. Okay, that's that's a pretty out there idea to not have any religious faith. And I think in a way, we need religion, but we also need to understand that what we believe is not an ultimate truth. And when you, when you start thinking that way and going, well, this is what I believe, what do you believe? All of a sudden you're communicating and there's more chance for peace. So I think that Imagine was a very slyly revolutionary song. It sounded like a beautiful anthem for peace. But when you drill down, it really asked people to change the way they look at the world and behave in appropriate ways. Another song that comes to mind for me, and uh, I haven't, you know, obviously considered uh, music this way much, and this conversation is making me do so, but is uh, Buffalo Springsfield's uh, For What It's Worth. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up, J.V., because I learned something I didn't know. And it goes back to to Phil Sloan, T.F. Sloan, who wrote Eve of Destruction. 
um, and I knew the last two years of his life. Really remarkable guy. Well, he just happened to be with Stephen Stills on Sunset Boulevard when they established a curfew, because all the kids were hanging out on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, and they were spilling over into the streets, and, and basically the police drew a chalk line and said, anybody who crosses this line is going to jail tonight. And P.F. Sloan was next to Stephen Stills when Stills saw that. And what happened, you, you got um, one of the great sociopolitical songs of all time from Buffalo Springfield. And it's, and it's also general enough that you can still apply it to other time periods. It doesn't say, here we are on the Sunset Strip. You know, right. he talks in a general way about what's going on and do we really know what's going on and let's look around. So it's applicable to different time periods. Um, as artists started to recognize that they could influence people and the, and maybe the public discourse and maybe even influence politics with, with their uh, music, did, uh, did they get braver about it in, in general? I think it's, um, this is a, also a really good question, and it's dependent on more than one thing. It's dependent upon the artist. It's dependent upon the artist finding the right songwriter if that artist doesn't write sociopolitical songs. Um, you require a label that's brave enough to put out the music and is not afraid of losing money. I refer you to my earlier comments about Barry Gordy and Motown. And it's also about how you disseminate music. For the first time, you know, in, in the history of the music industry, people can record and write their own music in their home and distribute it right. over the Internet. So it doesn't necessarily make you a star, but all of a sudden, if you have something that catches fire, that has social media behind it, if you work it and it taps into the zeitgeist, you have a song that is going to have a life. There are more people creating music, and of course there's, that means that there's, there are more people competing, but it also means more opportunity. And it means that it doesn't matter if an A&R guy at a, at a major label in New York or Los Angeles says, nah, we don't want to touch this stuff, it's too hot, because other people can go out and do it. And frankly, I'm very pleased to see that hip-hop music has been leading the way in terms of social commentary. I wish um, a genre like heavy metal would do more socially conscious stuff. I talk about Black Sabbath and War Pigs in, in Music is Power, and that's the exception to the rule. Why haven't more heavy metal bands done, instead of talking about Satanism, you know, talk about, I don't know, climate change or police violence or whatever you want to talk about. The music is naturally aggressive. Why not use it for sociopolitical purposes? Another great uh, sociopolitical song, at least I believe it is, is uh, Ohio. Oh, yeah, I have a whole section on Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Do you know how fast that song came out, right? No. Oh, it was, it was literally... I've heard different stories, but it's safe to say that you know, after Kent State and um, Neil Young um, and, and Crosby saw the cover on, I guess it was Life magazine of that young woman screaming over, over the dead body at Kent State, mm -hmm. 
shot down by the National Guard. You know, it's like, let's get the rest of the band and record this. And literally, they had that single out within two to three weeks. Wow. And, I mean, that's the artwork, that's pressing it. And they were smart because they understood that it was a moment in history and they needed to get the release of that song out as fast as possible, as close to the event as possible. And people today still talk about that song, and the the, the intonation of the guitar is very yeah. gnarly yeah. and very metal-sounding, and the words are, they're furious. I mean, they're so angry, and it just really reaches you, these, these four poor students who were shot down, one of whom, by the way, People always forget about this. One of the kids who was shot down at Kent State was in ROTC. Mm. He was a right-wing kid, and he was shot down by the National Guard. Wow. Um, do the songs that make the grade when it comes to this discussion, do they have to be dark? Do they have to? I mean, Ohio has a real darkness to it. Um or can they be light? And and I'm going to throw a title out here, and and don't laugh at me when I throw this out. Okay, um, but I you know you've got Paul McCartney's "Ebony and Ivory." Mm-hmm. Is, yeah, no, well, that's about that's about race, isn't exactly. it? It's yeah. about acceptance, right? You know, it's not it's not just about you know Michael Jackson and and, and Paul McCartney going, let's cash in, um, and. You know, that's fine. It's not my musical taste, but it's a positive message. Hey, look, one of the few exceptions to the rule of country music being very pro-America and never criticizing anything is a really funny song called Harper Valley PTA. Oh, that's a great song. Yeah, Jeannie C. Riley. Mm-hmm. You know, no one had ever heard of Jeannie C. Riley. It sold two million copies. And basically the song is a very funny one. Um, about a mother who wears kind of short skirts, mm-hmm. and the PTA is judging her, and she walks into a PTA meeting, and she criticizes all the people who are the head of the PTA in Harper Valley. You know, one guy drinks too much, another one impregnated his secretary. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, a woman walks around naked with her, with her blinds up, and, she, and basically the mother in the story of the song tears these people a new one, and it's hilarious, and yet it's a country song, and it's talking about hypocrisy. And you're laughing, and it's a very light and very fun song. It's a terrific song. Um, we have to move it along because we're going to run out of, run out of time here. But uh, yeah. we, we all know, anybody who's paid attention to the music industry know that it's changed significantly uh, since we've moved from a record-slash-CD-slash-radio model of uh, music business to now download and digital. Has that made any difference in this process? I think you may have touched on it. We said now that now more people can create more easily. It's true. And, and people can be inspired. Look, if, if in the old days you required getting the band together and rehearsing and getting a demo tape and trying to get a deal and then recording, I mean, there's a long process. And a lot of people probably gave up, you know, putting their music out there. So, for example, like a couple of months ago, I was doing an interview for Music is Power, JV, and I had just heard that this artist named Jill Soboli 
had done the song. A friend of mine sent me it. She had just basically put it out and put it on YouTube. And it was called um, Giving It to the Libs, as in liberals. <laughs> and it's a song about COVID-19. And, and the speaker in the song is going, we're tired of those liberals and telling us what we can do. And by the end of the song, the person who is singing is in a hospital bed. And the whole thing is a cartoon. It's an animated cartoon with Jill Soberly singing. So it's like... You know, she went to a friend who's an animator and said, can you whip this up? I just recorded this in my home studio. And all of a sudden, it's out there. And it's delightful. It's funny in the face of this horrible pandemic. And that in itself is bravery, to write a funny sociopolitical song when tens of thousands of people are dying around you really remarkable and and it gives me incredible encouragement too with the uh move to digital distribution for virtually everything creative the um one thing that that may or may not be a concern here is that um you know you've got platforms like youtube which a lot of people listen to their music on youtube now mm -hmm. um you, yeah. also, you also have facebook but you also have those um tech companies uh, and they do it to this show occasionally. We'll have a topic, um, you know, when we if we have somebody on that talks about flat Earth, which we have, mm -hmm. uh, we get shadow banned, and our our videos and our our podcasts don't get distributed as widely. Do you mm. does that concern you? Does censorship concern you? Let's say somebody writes a song um, about uh, hydro what's a hydro. Uh, hydroxychloroquine or whatever that that hydroxychloroquine, yeah. right? Let's, which does not. Uh, help you in terms of COVID-19. Let's say somebody writes a song that says it does and throws it up on YouTube. Is, is there a fear that YouTube's going to censor this this type of expression? Well, again, I'm not going to be super optimistic, but I am optimistic to note in following the news that certain medical facts that are being espoused are being taken down from social media. Um, you know, we just had like four of the biggest... Um, corporate heads in the world testifying in front of Congress, you know, including Facebook and Amazon. Right. And, and there is a movement going on that says, you are responsible. Don't tell us you're not responsible for what people post, because if there are provable facts that aren't facts. In other words, if somebody's saying hydroxychloroquine doesn't cure and somebody says it does, and we have the science that proves it, it should come down from social media, and social media is starting to be a little bit more conscious of that. I'm seeing stuff that can be scientifically disproven being taken down. But you're absolutely right. It is always a danger when you have quote-unquote fake news. You have got to basically certify that there are certain avenues, there are certain books, there are certain newspapers, there's certain radio sources that are reliable and that have proven to be reliable. And you should, you should question stuff. So, yeah, this is always of concern and more so now because technology is, is making it a, even murkier. Deep fakes, I fear that, you know, we're going to see people on camera saying something and then it turns out it's a deep fake. It wasn't that person saying it at all. And now yeah. you've just ruined their career because they said something horrible. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got to be aware of that. 
And the last thing I would say on that, because I love that topic, and I'm so glad you brought it up, the last thing I would say is people don't want intervention by the government in how they live, and I understand that. But when technology creates the possibility of violence or of civil rights or disinformation, the only people who can control it for the whole country are the people in the government by passing rules and regulations. So I would not have any problem if those guys in D.C. for a change did something useful and passed a law about deep fakes and passed a law about printing information that is scientifically not true, that there should be fines for it. I think that we have to have the government protect us from the stuff that could cause problems. I think that's a little bit of a, a step in a direction that um, my question wasn't intended for. Maybe Oops. maybe I can ask it a little differently. Oops. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's a great point. Um, but um, you know, recently, be, as we've seen this cultural shift, particularly as it relates to race, you know, a, a, a classic work of art, uh, Gone with the Wind, has come under scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that is a it's it's a it's a it's a, an expression. It's an art form, and it is a product of its time. It's not a product of today. It's a product of, I don't know. The film was made in 1939. I'm not sure when the novel was written. Um, so, are you afraid or concerned that a political, politically expressive piece of music may suffer the same fate? And is that right? Yeah, an excellent question. Look, my attitude. Let me answer it by telling you what I feel about um, the Confederate, the Confederate monuments, not the Confederate flag. I think that Confederate monuments are a part of U.S. history, and I think they should be in a museum. Why couldn't? Why can't you have a museum of the Confederacy in every state that wants it? You know, but don't put it in public because it represents the enslavement of a whole race of people, which is illegal and immoral. Now, Gone with the Wind, I would say you watch it in the context of when it was made. Right. You know, D.W. Griffith made a movie called Intolerance, in which uh, the Ku Klux Klan were the good guys. Okay, so, you know, he was a racist, but he made an amazing movie. He was like a titan in the cinema. So when you watch Intolerance, you go... Wow, look what they could do in the early 1900s in terms of cinema. I'm not going to root for the Klan, but this is a work of art. Right. And guess what? People learn and evolve and change through society. So I, I, I would not censor anything within Gone with the Wind, or, or even, a, even if there was like a song, like say there was a blues song mm-hmm. written by um, somebody who advocated something really unpleasant. I'd say it is a a work of art, and it's of its time. And you can say, I don't like it, or you can say, I like it, but I don't agree with it. You can say whatever you want, but you don't just eliminate it from the face of the earth. And that's why I think that the monuments need to come down, but they shouldn't be disappeared. People should be able to walk into a museum and say, yeah, that's what happened in the 1860s. That's why this country was split in half, and that's why, thank goodness, we came back together again. Boy, I, don't, I can't think of a more controversial 
maybe even more important way that we could have ended this discussion because we really, really got into it. Um, but it's fascinating stuff and it's amazing. And this actually just illustrates how important music is because music does, it touches all of these things we've talked about tonight. Yeah. You know, it, it heals you. It cheers you up. It, it makes you cry and feel connected to other people and their suffering. It works in so many ways. And, that was one of the things I wanted to do, not only touch on every genre, JV, but to tell all people, no matter what kind of music you like, um, love, love songs are, are the predominant form. Why can't we every once in a while talk about the ills of the world and hopefully make them better? And that's what Music is Power was all about for me when I started it. Well, uh, job well done, and thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. And I'm going to warn you already that I'm going to tell Slick Eddie that he needs to set up another uh, time when you can come on the program, Brad, because I want to talk about some of your other work as well. And we touched okay. on a couple, but there's I want to have a good uh, in-depth discussions like we did tonight about some of this other stuff you've written. Well, your questions were fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, big thanks to you and Slick Eddie and all of your listeners, and I look forward to that next discussion, JB. And once again, let people know where they can find your books. Yeah, you know, you can find them at um, bradschreiber.com, or if you don't know how to spell Schreiber, you can write Brash Cyber, B-R-A-S-H-C-Y-B-E-R. Sounds like you're saying Brad Schreiber, but you're drunk off your ass and slurring (laughs) your speech, brashcyber.com. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, again, thanks for being here, Brad. We'll talk to you again soon, I promise. Thank you, JV. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by JV Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.